0: I'm Lisa Francesca Nand and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast brought to you by WeCure. WeCure is the leading health tourism provider in the UK, connecting patients seeking dental treatments, aesthetic procedures and social and mental well-being with internationally accredited medical institutions in Turkey. Visit wecure.co.uk slash Big Travel Podcast today to claim your exclusive offer, Week Your turns your treatment into a relaxing holiday. For more details, visit weekyour.co.uk slash bigtravelpodcast. And now, on to today's episode. Award-winning travel and food blogger from Hey Dip Your Toes In, Yolanda Shed Osagaday grew up balancing beautiful forests and mountains with growing gang violence and police oppression in Colorado, studied dance in New York City, and then moved to the UK. On this episode, we talk the colonial history of travel writing, Black Lives Matter, Japan's beautiful kimonos, luxurious Moroccan hammams, feeling at home in the Caribbean, and the Tanzanian seaweed collector who changed her perception. Yolanda Shed Osagade is on the Big Travel Podcast. It's a very, it's a, an interesting time for travel professionals, isn't it? It is. It really. When... <laughs> we've got covid and we're, we're coming out of lockdown a lot of countries are coming out of lockdown but we don't know how that will end up and where have you been during lockdown
1: I'm right here at this fancy place called home um in london so i live in southeast london uh, in beckenham so yeah it's nice because there's a lot of green space and we go for walks and there's lots of parks around which you know it's quite nice. So we've done some kind of like outdoor stuff where we'll go and have um, you know bring food and little hamper and stuff and that's like our date, you know, having a little date on the weekend or something like that. But it hasn't been consistent, but we do it when we can. So that um, nice.
0: I had no idea you're in Beckenham. I'm in Greenwich, and I actually could have just come down to uh, yeah. <laughs> to chat to you. Then we'll do that next time. We'll Definitely. do that next time. But I don't know about you, but I'm a. I live in a beautiful part of the uh, the world, a beautiful part of London. But I'm sick of all these lovely walks I'm going on. You know, I'm absolutely sick of the beautiful green fields, the historic architecture, that stunning river. It's like take me at least, just take me to the other side of London, for goodness' sake. Seriously, I
1: was like, give me some Shoreditch. I need some like street art. I need some <laughs> a bit more. Mm.
0: Yeah. Well, you don't You don't sound like you're from Beckenham. So tell me a little bit about where you're from. Well, I actually was born
1: on an Air Force base in Illinois. So not too far from Chicago, I guess. Well, yeah, Springfield, Illinois. And my family kind of traveled around a little bit. But by that time, my mother was living with her parents. They... Um, had just retired. So moved to Alabama at that time uh, where my grandfather, you know, ended up, that was his place of retirement. So I spent my early years there and then my mother married my father, uh, my stepfather who raised me and we moved to Colorado. And I spent most of my formative years in Colorado up until I moved to New York to, to study dance. So it was just one of those things of, I, I remember um, having a decision to make it. Was I going to stay in New York or was I going to take advantage of a study abroad opportunity? And so the whole, I kind of weighed the costs and benefits of um, staying in New York. And I was like, okay, I can really like struggle as a performing artist and basically lose out on all of this time I've already spent in undergrad. Cause I'd already been in school for four years and, you know, I said, Mm, not going to do that I'm going to take advantage of the study abroad opportunity and that brought me to England for a semester and that kind of wet my taste buds for coming back here again and then in 2011 I applied for grad school got accepted to the University of Roehampton and then ended up moving to the UK met my husband stayed here and there the story goes
0: you you're not a performing artist you're a travel blogger and travel professional but actually you do perform don't you because you you create a lot of videos you're you're still using that was it accidental how you fell into travel
1: oh i mean absolutely i mean i was i'd been in academia for so long in the dance sphere so i studied uh, i got my masters in perform uh, choreography and dance technology. So I had every intention into going into teaching again, because I'd been teaching you know, pri- previously before that. But you know, I couldn't find work. I couldn't find a university job because what happens is here, the market is much smaller than in the US and then people end up staying until they die in these university lecturer positions. And so I had to do a bit of a pivot and I decided to go back to my skills as a photographer. I did not find that. I didn't find that enjoyable, like working the fashion and uh, wedding circuit. It just for me, it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't filling all of my needs. So. Yeah, it was was definitely by accident because I Omo and I had gotten married and we had so many shared commonalities between food culture and travel and we decided to start this kind of like online diary because my father said, You guys should write a book. I said, No, I'm not ready for that. So, well you should, you know, start a blog. I was like, hmm, good idea. Six months later we start the blog and it just pretty much dominoed and kind of snowballed from there. And yeah, it's just been an amazing journey.
0: What was it like growing up in Colorado from a travel perspective? Because Colorado, I've been to Colorado. Uh, it's, a, it's a place of travel for many of us. What was it like growing up there? That
1: was beautiful. Like, going, skiing, and we did a lot of stuff in the mountains because I was in Girl Scouts. So, you know, learned how to navigate yourself in like complete black forest at night without any lights and You know, learning learning survival skills—that was really cool. Um, But also, growing up in the '90s and being around gang violence, and you know, that was also a stark reality as well. So you you had these escapes where you'd go to the the mountains, but then you were also in communities that were facing a lot of marginalization and you know, economic oppression. So there's a lot going on there. So you kind of had
0: this duality of living in two different worlds. So tell, Tell me a little bit about that. I mean, you're talking about that happening in the 90s now. We're in the middle... Are we at the tail end of the whole Black Lives Matter protest? Are we in the middle of them? We don't know at this point. They're still ongoing as we speak. And you talk about the 90s being a significant time for that sort of thing. So, you know, now, unfortunately, that there's not a lot has actually changed. So what what sort of exposure did you have to that in Colorado in the 90s?
1: Um, goodness. I remember going to festivals, uh, like cultural celebration festivals, and there were shootings all the time. And people, you hear you hear a gunshot, and you fall to the ground. Like you just got used to that. I remember, my parents didn't tell us at the time, but something happened, and all of a sudden, my dad was like, "Why don't you guys all go downstairs?" And he was like, "Nita, take the kids downstairs." We're like, "Okay," and apparently two bullets had fall, flown through our window and it was just random shooting again i was 17 i had just um, learned how to drive i was driving my parents car i wasn't supposed to be driving the car because they were on vacation in jamaica and i my the back shield the back windshield window of my parents car was shot out while i had just pulled up to a stoplight and it my parents had just gotten back in town that evening it took the police officers like 45 minutes to get there. Now, my parents live about 20 minutes away. They got there in about 15 minutes, yeah. And the the feeling that you got from that uh, interaction was almost like self-criminalization from the officers. It was not my first encounter with police, even at the age of 17. Unfortunately, I had been detained by police at the age of 15. But, um, you know, that that experience, you know, had left me with this like fear of authority and police and all of that. So now when I look at Black Lives Matters and I look at the support that's behind it and that you have people across all of these different you know, um, backgrounds, economic backgrounds, racial backgrounds, you know, uh, just everything, social backgrounds, and they're supporting, you know, the the plight of, you know, the amplification of black voices, and not just that, but like the systemic brutalization of black bodies, you know, being against that, like for me, it's such a celebration, you know, and going, we went to the protest uh, last weekend, and it was an amazing, it was, you know, it was more like a peace walk than anything when you say protest. But you know, it, it, it's such a change for me from growing up in a sense, like you could not raise your fists and say black power. You could not, um, even just talking about your blackness was in many ways looked at as you being radical. And I love that now that you can not say that you can be unapologetic because in the past I was unapologetic about it regardless, but I feel a lot more empowered and it's a wonderful thing to be experiencing that as a woman of 41, you know, so yeah.
0: I hope a lot of people feel that empowerment and I and I think, you know, from the feedback I'm getting, I think they do. And let's, I don't want to just focus on that, but it isn't a different experience being a black traveler. I was talking about this the other day, Travel writing, travel journalism has a long, almost colonial-esque history of white man going to explore foreign lands, meeting a few natives, writing a few nice words about it at home, publishing a book, you know, the grand tour, all that sort of thing. So as a, as a black traveler, and you don't focus on black travel, which is, if you focus on travel, but th- there is a difference, isn't there? There are countries where, you know, I've experienced it myself as a, as a mixed race person. There are countries where it is different to travel as a black person, how how has that informed your work? Oh, it's absolutely informed my work. Uh, you
1: know, from the basis of one, travel writing needs to be decolonized. It <laughs> just period, um, and you see this in the interactions of of people when they interact with eight black travelers, and this could be anywhere from let's say my home country, the U.S. I remember an incident of visiting uh, San Diego and running into, um, well, not running into, we, we went to a restaurant, sat down at a community table, and there was a gentleman probably in his late 50s, maybe early 60s with his partner. And he was some executive for some, you know, Fortune 500 company. Eventually that information came out. But he's, you know, we start up a conversation. Everything seems great. Just, you know, talking about, oh, where we came from and, you know, what we're going to be doing while we're in the city, so on and so forth. And all of a sudden he says, he says, wow, you know, he's like, you're so eloquent. (laughs) And, you know, I, I said, oh, I was like, and I knew exactly what he was saying, but I wanted him to explain and elaborate. And I was like, oh, I'm I'm sorry. What do you mean by that? And he's like, no, no, I'm just really surprised that. And I, um, I know he wants to say that a black woman speaks like this, like, and, and that's that form of like tone policing that is so common. And, and it's for some it's unconscious bias. And for others, it's very conscious, very, very conscious. And he just kept kind of digging himself, you know, like in the hole, like, you know, he's like, Oh, well, you know, it's just, it's just very rare that you find um, women like yourself, you know, that part again, I was like, tick, like, like, buddy, just stop! Like, please stop right now. You, it's it's getting worse, but you you know you have experiences like that, and if you can have those in the United States, you can have them anywhere in the world, and but I almost feel that there are other places where I feel like it's been more curiosity than it being a kind of be, almost like a demeaning type of conversation. Um, some of the worst experiences that my husband and I have had have actually been when we've been traveling with other fellow white journalist. And I'm not saying that it's across the board, all journalists. Sometimes it's just that one, you know, that can make something that can question you based on the experience that you had. Like you get detained, you know, by immigration. And then you say, oh, you know, I'm used to this happening because I'm black. And they're like, oh, no, that's not why you were detained. And they do you feel dehumanized? You feel like they've tried to devalue your experience and question your experience and you're you know, everything that relates to your lived experience as a Black person navigating, you know, white authority. So, yeah, there's a lot of issues there that come around traveling while Black.
0: (laughs) You can't possibly. I've been arguing a lot about this on social media recently about, you know, people saying, well, all lives matter. It's like we know all lives matter, of course, but we don't have to say that right now. You know, this is not the times we know we're not saying just because black lives matter doesn't mean that nobody else matters. I've been having this argument so many times and you'll you'll have it with white people who have no idea because they have not lived that experience and you know what i have i'm not i'm i'm calling myself almost you know from the white side at, at this point i haven't lived that experience either i've lived some of it as someone who's half asian but i haven't lived all of it because unfortunately the societies and people who are shadist and because I'm half white and half Asian, I don't have that lived experience. We just cannot take that away from people. It's just absolutely shocking. It's yeah. Oh. So where have, where have you felt comfortable? Where have you felt, where, where is, has been somewhere that embraces you?
1: Oh goodness. There's several places. Um, Japan. I loved visiting Japan last year. And although there was a lot of curious stares sometimes, but it was so, it was so gentle, and it was so um, respectful. It you know you would you might catch the eye of someone local, um, that was caught kind of staring, and then all of a sudden they're averting their eyes and they're bowing to you in apology. You know, like they're apologizing for maybe staring, and um, the anyone that would come up to you about taking a photo, you didn't feel like they were exoticizing you. Um, first, they would compliment you. Um, it, and it would only happen like if I had traditional dress on because we had like this kimono experience. And so I had a lot of um, older local Japanese women coming up and just saying how beautiful um, they thought it was that I was embracing their culture and how how honored they were and could they take photos with me? And they thought it was very beautiful. And I, I really respected that. And I really felt a connection with that, that it was just a really beautiful interaction and whatnot. And then traveling to the Caribbean, you know, you, I just always feel at home. Um, you know, even outside of places, like I would say, even when I've traveled through places in Africa, whether that's like East or West, or north. I've I have definitely I feel like I've felt even more at home in the Caribbean. So it's not about just having they say, like in the black community, you know, skin folk or king folk. And I don't necessarily always find that to be true, you know, where you travel. It's it's just um it's about finding a place where you really do feel at home and it's going to be different for everyone. But, you know, I've just started exploring the Caribbean just as of last year. And so has my husband, we went to two different countries um, apart, and we both had such a similar experience. And it was just, it's a bit of this kind of slightly slower pace of life in certain regions or, you know, certain cities, and, you know, this focus on food culture and family and just really enjoying life. And so, yeah, I definitely um, love, love that feeling and appreciate it.
0: You, it sounds like you've got an awful life here, Yolanda. I really feel really so sorry for you. Where is the place? Go on, make us feel sick. Where is the, the most luxurious, most gorgeous, relaxing location you've been? Oh, the most luxurious. Um, I keep thinking of this host
1: luxury. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So there was, hmm, that's a hard one. There's a couple, okay, so there's two different examples. So there was a place I went to a couple of years ago in Niptek, uh, Morocco, which is like, uh, you know, east, eastern, yeah, northeastern side of Morocco, like really close to um, that, that very small Spanish um, country. With a C, quick, quick. Ceuta, Ceuta. Ceuta. Ceuta, yes. Um, so very, very, like literally, you can take a ferry and it takes like a 20-minute ferry ride to get to Ceuta. Um, but yeah, I stayed at this resort called, it was a brand new one. They had just opened it for in the, the last couple of months there. Uh, called, it was a banyan tree, part of that banyan, banyan tree, um, uh, you know, properties. And I mean, <laughs> it was just, Incredible, you know the experience and the the eye for detail. Everything from the the treatments, you know, in terms of for self care, and massages, and uh, I mean, the the tub itself was so magnificent because you have these like floor to ceiling tiles, and and it's like this beautiful, almost like full backsplash with this beautiful kind of um, stone tub that's like this bowl that you can just soak in and the place was about three different for each everyone is has a suite so it's like three different rooms that you move from all separate and there's just massive and then you have your own dipping pool you know in the back and you're just thinking, is this real life? <laughs> like, and, you know, the food uh, and the, the care, like the, the chefs always come out. And if you have any food allergies like myself, they were just they paid extra attention. They wanted to make sure that everything was OK. So my bread was made fresh every day, every morning. And they came out and presented it to me with a special little tray. And then when you go to sleep at night, they had a special tray of gluten free and dairy free sweets with a special tea. And I mean, it, you know, it's just one of those things. Where you're like, this is a dream. This is utterly a dream. It was incredible.
0: The Moroccans take but bar- You know, I really respect as a big a fan of taking a bath I probably have an hour-long bath every day um where I often phone people actually and try and pretend I'm not in the bath you know because it gets a bit embarrassing I really do respect a culture that takes their baths seriously and the Moroccans you know they do that like you said with the the tiles and the tubs and the hammams and oh I absolutely love that experience oh it's so good you're just like oh
1: can I have this every day please
0: (laughs) Has there ever been anywhere as someone who gets uh, goes on a loads of press trips like you know you do, and I used to go on many, many more than I do now. Um, has there ever been anywhere that you felt you haven't been able to write about? Because I have one resort in the Maldives that I never—it was just too infested with mosquitoes and just the whole. I couldn't lie basically, so I chose to just pretend I never went there. Have you got somewhere that you've had you like that?
1: Yeah, and so we go to Portugal all the time. I mean, of course not right now because everything going on, but we. I uh, went to another kind of island um, nearby Madeira. So we've gone to Madeira, I think twice now. And then there's another smaller island that you can take a ferry to that I think is about an hour long ferry ride or something um, called um, Porto Santo. And it's a beautiful island, but the geographic formations are quite different from the main island of Madeira. But um, we had had this arrangement set up with a PR to review this particular hotel and the pictures that we were sent looked it looked fine, um, and so we went, and it was. Well, you said it was so bad. Like, I was like, I said, "There's no way." I said, "There's no way we're even staying a night here. Like, we cannot." I said, "I don't even want to sleep in here at all. Like, it was that bad. Like the, you know, the the what is it?" The uh, duvets, everything were like super thin. Uh, everything smelled of smoke and there were like stains on the wall. And I, yeah, I was just like, there's just no way. Like, this is supposed to go in a luxury travel magazine. <laughs> like, what were they thinking when, I don't know, approving, you know, saying that, yeah, this is, this will, this will be a great fit for the magazine. But so, yeah, we went, we found a different place and, you know, paid for our own lodging because uh, you know, it was just too late to try to arrange something then. But we were just so glad that we hightailed it out of there. And yeah, we never wrote about it, even though they wanted us still to like mention it. And I, was, like, I said, there's no way I sent them pictures and they said, oh, OK, you know. And yeah, it was, it was awful,
0: awful. I always say that travel writing is very partial because we can be easily bought. You know, let's let's be honest, if someone offers you a free trip somewhere, you know, you, you, you can be easily bought. But I do like to think that we have some integrity is that we only write about the places that we like. And let's face it, most of them are pretty good. You know, it's actually quite a good gig.
1: It is. It's so, so true. It's just every once in a while you get that like bad apple that you can't you can't write about. Period, and I'm, you know, we're really big on integrity. So you don't want to recommend a place that you would not return to.
0: You, you, and Omo, you are really big on integrity, and I really love that about your, your blog. And you've been doing it a long time, and you know you have got this reputation, and deservedly so, good reputation, and deservedly so. Do you feel that people? I think this is this goes without saying these days, but back when blogs started, they weren't taken very seriously, and now they seem to be taken. Very, very seriously, as Instagrammers are taken very seriously as well. Have have you felt that sea change? Oh, there's definitely been a change. I think even in the
1: language, it used to be that you say, oh, I'm a blogger. And it was like, hmm, you know, I I mean, even still, I mean, I went to an event last year. um, I was asked to speak on a panel about influencers versus bloggers. And because, sorry, not influencers, um, influencers versus journalists. And it was this kind of like, oh, how can we work together? But then what are what's the difference? You know, what makes it different? So they had, like, editors of a few different big publications in the UK. And then I think they have one other journalist and then me who does both. So um, and then it was the commentator, you know, the, 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 the person who moderated the panel. So he comes from the old guard. You know, he's an older white British gentleman. And he... Immediately did not see the value in what I did. And he decided he had asked me before we were starting the conversation, uh, you know, so he's like, oh, you have a great voice for radio. Like, you know, have you ever thought about doing it? I was like, actually, yeah, I did some um, back in undergrad, but I I was like, I used to do commercials for uh, and do voiceovers um, to help pay bills. And he's like, oh, really? What was one of your favorite characters? And I was kind of joking. But it was like, I loved, I actually really loved this character. And I was like, oh, it was a talking cucumber. And he was like, oh, that's hilarious. And then he goes and he introduces me as the talking cucumber for the panel when he gave everyone else all of these really beautiful and elaborate uh, introductions he he literally introduced me as the talking cucumber with oh, great no. with with great hair
0: so, oh my goodness <laughs> yeah so <laughs> oh yeah. i think so, sometimes i'm in i'm trying to defend him i have no idea why maybe people are awkward you know particularly on stage, I'm trying to think of yeah, but it's pretty unjustifiable, isn't it? Yeah, especially when he wasn't awkward with
1: anyone else. Everyone else was introduced properly with respect, and um, and and then even the interaction afterwards, because the whole time of that, the entire panel, it was literally like me kind of against him, and everyone else kind of came to my defense, and which was really great because he kept trying to focus on the fact that like, well you consider yourself an influencer and a journalist, but does that actually really work, you know, in this world? And, you know, is it, you know, how, how do you, how do you handle things? So you probably proof your own work. And I was like, no, I have a sub editor that goes <laughs> over my work. Like, you know, <laughs> I I don't know. It, it was really kind of bizarre talking about that, but that's very much the old mentality. I say the older type of mentality it's, it is going out of date. It's kind of crumbling you know, very quickly. And new journalism, journalists are getting blogs, and they're realizing that they have to also advertise themselves as freelancers if they're not on staff for a publication. And it's also just a really great place to like a marketplace to be able to show off your work that maybe doesn't fit into, you know, that one niche area that you might write for and in, in a publication. So it for me, it's become a marketplace. And it's the same thing with Instagram, although sometimes I feel like, you know, Instagram can be a bit um, more about like perception, like you're showing what you want people to see and. Um, You know, there's there's a whole kind of argument with that as well. But honestly, these all of these media or let's say platforms, whether it's a blog or Instagram, TikTok, they're all just marketplaces to showcase ideas and showcase, you know, your brevity of content. So it's about how you utilize it and how you allow your voice to be amplified.
0: It's uh, it's liberating in a way that you can call yourself anything. You don't have to wipe out a label on it. You know, do you have to be a journalist? Do you have to be a content creator or an Instagram or influencer or whatever? But I suppose people like to label you for some reason. Uh, you mentioned there about the Instagram and things being this window on your perfect world. Now, we don't. None of us have a window. None of us have this perfect world. And I think, you know, particularly with the whole lockdown and everything, a lot of us have been struggling what, what are your struggles? We like to go a little bit deep and meaningful on the podcast. I'll end it with a high, but what are, what are your struggles? How is, how are you, how are you right now?
1: Yeah, you know, it's been, I think the very beginning, it was a true struggle. Like I was depressed. I was in this state of um, remorse and grief because all of the gigs we had lined up um, between now and July, we're all of a sudden either being pulled, frozen, you know, or just kind of eh, we don't know yet or being in some cases we're being ghosted as well. So there's all these different spaces and you, know, you do all your income projections. you know many of us do that at the beginning of the year. and so we we're like, oh, okay, this by first quarter this is what we would have made and um, we had a lot of other plans with buying a house and you know, so many things. And so we're really counting on this like we've said, okay, we projected five, fig- five figures of income. That's just gone kind of in a sense like within a few weeks. And so it was really a reckoning time and realizing that, okay, is this really a sustainable business model where you put all of your eggs in kind of one vertical? And so it really got us to um, expand. We had planned on launching a course that was really focused on um, travel content creators, journalists is going to have quite a few different um, like sub niches in there, but Um, We decided against it and to decide it to widen it out a bit more and not just make it about the travel industry. Because right now the travel industry is really suffering and as as are many other industries as well. But we really wanted to focus on um, thinking about like how can we pivot right now? Like and I think COVID has been about that has really like forced people and also encouraged people to make that choice to pivot and start to open up other streams of income, um, start to go into a serious development phase. So for myself, you know, I had to look at um, building out other forms of educational content. So I started a series called School Days, where we interview content creators about their behind the scenes process and then have them teach a tutorial. And it's free Skillshare. And people are encouraged to donate. And that's been great because people have been donating to the program, but it also allows me to form these really great collaborative relationships with other creators. And I have also a backlog of free content for people. So they see the value. And then whenever they do have to pay for the content, they realize like, oh, I've been investing and watching all of this amazing free content. Beforehand, so they're not going to have such a push, you know, to then invest, you know, in these educational tools. So there's that, and then also consulting work as I'm doing DNI, sorry, uh, DNI consulting for brands. That's been very new. So now I'm doing a certification course for DNI, and um, you know, I've always had a background in education, but. This this has been definitely a bit of a, a shift, but that's in, because it's in demand right now. It just
0: made sense. So and it, yeah. it sounds like it's going to not only shift you and many of us personally, but also the way of, of the whole the, the world, the way the world works in many ways. You know, more people working from home. You're incredibly impressive. You're so organized, what with projections and sub-editors and things. And I just feel like compared to you, I'm absolutely winging it. So I have no doubt that you're just going to go from strength to strength. Uh, I'm going to ask you two last questions because, um, well, because we're coming to the end of the podcast, but also um, my last question is always about music. I'm going to get to that in a second because I just want to ask you one more travelly question. What travelly thing have I missed? What's your most standout travel story? travel is a very professional wor- word. I'm going to use it a lot more than that. What's your most tra- standout travel story from any country you've been to in the world?
1: Well, I love the word travel-y first. It is <laughs> absolutely a word now. I'm going to use that one. Um, I, For me, it was a lesson I learned and it showed me my, my own privilege, self-perceived privilege. Um, it was a... Goodness, it was a time that we were visiting the what was it? Zanzibar and Island of Zanzibar, you know, near um, Tanzania. And we encountered a woman on a beach in this area called Paje and she was collecting seaweed. So it's, you know, it's very well known there that at a certain time, in, in the morning, the sea really recedes. And then for almost a few miles, like you can go out and there's seaweed and everything. But the women who do it really early on in the beach, um, they'll do it like right before the rising of the sun. So what happened was I was I had, I had like a film camera, I had my digital camera, and I'm just like shooting pictures of her kind of far away because the light was amazing. She looked amazing. As we got closer to her, I was really captured by... Um, the way the sand was going across her face and um, the color of her skin and this, you know, just, just this texture and light and um, this other story as well that you could tell there was hardship there. And I then proceeded to, you know, I wanted to take a photo of her, like a few photos of her. And I, you know, just automatically perceived that she might speak English. Thing is, is that I didn't speak Kiswahili, so, you know, in my head, I'm thinking, oh, she doesn't speak English as I started speaking. And I think it so from that level one was like a reminder of like when you step into countries where you are not the majority, do not assume that they're going to speak your language. You need to assume that you can't speak theirs. So, you know, just that level of privilege, like even me as a black woman speaking to another black woman there. And then the second level that I had to challenge myself on was my perception of the fact that, you know, her photo is her intellectual property. You know, would she be... If I were to sell this photo or publish this photo, would she be making any money from it? Like what, you know, what would be the arrangement? And was I taking advantage of her? You know, things like that. So we, um, you know, it really got me thinking that morning as, you know, if she agreed, we paid her. I took, some, we took some photos of her, they're incredible photos, but I was really challenged about um, what to do with these photos and how to contribute. And so we, we had a real serious talk, uh, Omo and I together. And we decided that, okay, let's do some more research on women and uh, harvesting seaweed. And then we found that there's a seaweed center. So later that morning we left um, and made a contribution to the seaweed center and did a full like tour and talked to them about you know, the stories of women that are collecting seaweed along the beach and the type of program that they have and the type of support that they offer to them. And then what we did was that we interviewed a woman there that was working at the Seaweed Center. And she turns out to be the first woman on the island um, that is a tour, the only female tour guide on the island. Um, she's Muslim. She had divorced her husband um, because of like physical abuse and she was ostracized. And it was such an amazing story. And I was like, that's our story. Our story was not the woman on the beach that we didn't have a connection with that we I assumed privilege with her. You know, thinking I can just take her image, you know, because I'm black or because we might connect. There was no connection there. But this story, we were able to. This is the story we published. Was is story with this woman named Aisha, and we've still we still continue to help support her and our family and um, send people her way and you know support her financially when we can. And so it was. It was for us. It was really a shift in. Us really examining our own privilege as black travelers and also just, you know, pushing us to do better and be
0: better. That's why it's so important to have everyone at the table, to have everyone represented in travel writing. We started this conversation talking about, you know, the traditional white colonial male traveling to far-fung places and reporting on natives in a slightly patronizing way. And that's why a total wonderful illustration about about why it's important to have everyone's voice at the table. 100%
1: completely agree.
0: So I'm going to ask you my last question. My last question is always about music because I very much believe that music and travel go hand in hand. And I'd like to ask you to choose one song that reminds you of a special or memorable time and place of travel. What is that song and what is the moment?
1: Mm. Oh, wow. Music is so um,
0: non-linear for me. It's such a, that one is such a hard one. doesn't even have to be a good song, actually. I've had people listening to Britney Spears at the Top of Mount Everest.
1: <laughs> <laughs> There's a group called Les Nubiens that I always listen to when traveling. And I think because um, they, for me, like in my early 20s, when I had moved to New York and was you know, like basically discovering who I would become. Um, They were so instrumental in that. And I remember seeing them like live uh, in Central Park when they would have these free concerts there in New York. And yeah, you know, it's not even necessary. There's a lot of um, songs that could be like, oh, this one, this one, this one. But them as an entity was like their, you know, one of, I think their very first album that they produced together it's just something that's so special to me. Like I can still like in my broken French, you know, say all the lyrics to those songs because they really do just like um, connect with me, like one called La Guerre. And, you know, it's just, there's in me, they talk about social justice and they talk about family and connection and yeah, they, they are ones that like when I travel, it's, I tend to always have it on a playlist that I end up listening to because it's just, it's a vibe. It's wonderful.
0: Thank you so much, Yolanda, for that really, really enjoyable conversation. And thank you for listening to The Big Travel Podcast. We have some great guests lined up for you, including an author who sold millions of books worldwide, David Bowie's bass player, yes, really, and next for our 100th episode, a doctor who's had a huge and emotional impact on a lot of lives, including mine. And believe me, he has the most jaw-dropping travel story.